thank you, Stephen. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. I haven't done one of these, actually, now I think of it, since 2009. Really? No. I think you're wrong. Anyway, uh, so my name is Colin Harmon. So Steve's pretty much summed up everything I do. Uh, so I run 3FE. 3FE is a coffee shop. Uh, so we're reasonably busy. We do probably about like 100 tons of coffee. Um, we do, uh, we supply coffee to about 50 businesses around the, the country. Uh, so we do lots of consultancy things, events, anything vaguely associated with coffee. Uh, if I have a strength and I've looked hard and, and wide for what it is, uh, is that I, I, I love coffee industry. Uh, it's a really engaging place. You get to meet amazing people. But I've always had a healthy interest in other stuff. Uh, I think that's really important. And I think it's good to take inspiration and influence from, from what other people do. Um, recently, I signed up for a master's degree in innovation, enterprise, and design. And a lot of that is talking to processes, which we already do, and actually putting systems in place to achieve what we already achieve, but hopefully do it faster and better. And it's a real eye-opener talking to different industries about what we do, and have people in the computer sector or in farming or in uh, pharmaceuticals just say, that's ridiculous, and you're like, God, it is actually, isn't it? So I it's, it's a large part of what's motivated today. Uh, this is the title of my talk. <laughs> Uh, and in truth, like I think, uh, I hope most of you understand that this is a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but also there's something very serious at the heart of this. Um, it's it's something that's kind of been rocking around. I have a blog post on this that I really couldn't press publish on for like probably about three years now. And I thought maybe if I go up and explain myself, it might come out better. <laughs> I might go down in flames as well. Because I think we can pretty much all agree at this stage that it's not really... I can see you folding your arms here in the front row, Jeremy. There you go. Uh, I can see I told people, yeah, I'm going to talk. My title is Foot Cupping. I'm like, excuse me? Like, I think I could have gone up here and did a presentation on hunting dolphins and received a better reaction. Uh, so on tenterhooks, I'm going to advance. So during the week, I did post this. I had intended to come up here and talk about We Are All Marketing Scum. And it's a talk I did at a show in Dublin. And they told me they were going to record it and put it on the internet, and then they did, and with a fee you have to pay to see it. So I was like, Ugh, I'll just do it again and put it up for free. So that was my intention. And I put up for cupping as a kind of a joke, and then, yeah, I got 55% of the votes. So I was like, fuck cupping it is. In really, if it wasn't me, if it was somebody else, I would have said that the title is, an exploration of cupping is an appropriate process and the silly metrics we use in coffee shops. And this is kind of, well, that's a great noise. Uh, this is really the heart of what I'm trying to get across. And I spend a lot of my time like dishing out the words goal-focused in what we do. Is this goal-focused? What, what are you trying to achieve? Uh, and I don't mean that in the sense that I'm really great at that. I mean that like I'm probably very bad at it and have to stop myself and go, wait, what am I trying to achieve here? I'm really kind of asking those questions. I don't hate cupping at all, okay? I think cupping is wonderful. It's amazing. It's very interesting. Jeremy smiled. Okay, there you go. Starting to dissolve a little bit. Cupping is a very worthy process, very different stages. So it's a worthy process at origin. So it can help you determine crop quality. Okay, so you, the farmers or the producers can cup their coffee. This is very good quality coffee. It can help them to dif differentiate. So if they have two picking days, they can say, well, this picking day is better than this. 
you know, I don't know why that is, or maybe from different tablons within the same farm, whatever. Okay, so help them to differentiate. You're all starting to calm down a bit. Cause and effect. So you can do certain things to the soil, to with pruning methods, with processing, see what effect, you know, the cause and effect of those particular activities and how that affects the cup. And then you can also, like Steve has told me wonderful stories of how he's brought coffees from one country to another. Uh, I'd love to be able to see the look on Bolivian farmers' faces as they cup Kenyan coffees. I think that would be a really interesting thing in itself. And being able to do that, not even between different countries, but just different valleys, different areas, very worthy process. Importers and exporters, e essential. Portfolio is a very important thing for these people. And having coffees of different kinds, so I'm sure even in a coffee shop setting, it's uh, people can understand this, that you know they need certain coffees of different kinds because there's demand for that coffee in certain areas in different parts of the world. You need to have a range of coffees that you can offer people. Very important. Understanding customers. If customers are cupping coffees with you, you can see that they're losing their shit over coffees that taste awful for a certain reason. You're like, well, they like those sort of coffees. I can buy them for them. That's an interesting process. And then again, feeding back to origin. So if somebody's coffee isn't really getting well received, you can go back to producers and say, well, you know, you're not getting well received. Your coffee tastes like this. This coffee is getting well received. Tastes like that. There's a value in that. Roasters, obviously. Roasters is incredibly important to cup. Now, at this stage, I want to make something abundantly clear. I own a coffee roastery. I have not got a clue how to roast coffee. Not an absolute, how much do I know about roasting coffee? Steve knows more about brewing than I know about roasting coffee. I don't even know how to turn it on. I'm incredibly proud of that. Okay, I'm going to get a little bit serious now. I ended up in hospital about three years ago with stress, uh, convinced that there was something really seriously wrong with me. And the doctors told me that there was nothing wrong with me, that I was just trying to do everything. I very, very, like, in a very, like, literal sense, nearly broke myself trying to do everything. So now I own a roastery, and I have the luxury of having Steve to train the roasters and Roland to train the roasters and to have that feedback loop. And what I do is I set up that system. I create an environment for our roasters so that they can learn and progress in their jobs. And I'm incredibly proud of the fact that I don't know how to roast coffee. I've never been to a coffee farm, ever. So when I was a kid, my friend was obsessed with Star Wars, okay? And he uh, used to always say, oh, we should watch Star Wars. I was like, I've never seen Star Wars. He goes, do you want to watch it? Nah. And uh, it became this joke where I just continually tell him that I wasn't going to watch Star Wars because it just wound him up so much. I haven't seen him in about 24 years, uh, but I still to this day refuse to watch it. I don't, there's something deep inside me that likes to spite him. And like coffee farms, <laughs> that's really weird. Uh, coffee farms, have, uh, I'm not saying it's become that, but like uh, there is something that I'm inherently proud of, as odd as it sounds, that I've never been to a coffee farm. Uh, and I think it's because I'm goal-focused, because you can't do everything. You just can't. You can try. Good luck, fill your boots, but you can't. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to own a roastery and I wanted to have a coffee shop in Dublin. That's what I wanted to do. I want, at this stage, your goals change over time. I want to have a house for my kids. I want to support them. I want to have, you know, spare time with my wife. I want to have a team of staff that are motivated, I want to be able to produce great coffee, to have a nice experience for the customers. These are all the things that I want. There's other things I'd like to do. Am I not interested in coffee farms? That's not true. I'm very interested in coffee farms. But I know damn well that if I went with Steve to a coffee farm and started asking questions, I just would not stop asking questions. 
And we have a nice division of labor in that Steve is incredibly motivated by the fact that he visits coffee, sharm, coffee farms, and I don't have to be. But the thing is that I don't have to be ashamed of that. I don't have to be ashamed that I don't, need to ro I don't know how to roast coffee. I don't need to be ashamed that I've never visited a coffee farm. And I think there is a huge kind of like pressure in this industry to tick all of the boxes. Tick all of the boxes. Make sure that you do the thing. Do you have an ORO system? Do we need an ORO system? No, no, no. Do you have an ORO system? Things like this. Is, uh, our industry is full of these things that you have to do. You have to tick all of these boxes to be taken seriously. And to be quite honest, it annoys me quite a lot. With baristas, coming back to cupping, it is, okay. I love when baristas cup. I think it's great. It's a wonderful skill to have. It's not necessary. Dramatic pause. Now, I want to qualify that. Do I think it's important? Yeah. Do I think they should do it, by all means? Is it necessary? Not a chance. I don't think it's necessary at all. So, I cup very rarely. I do some cupping. Uh, the first time I cupped actually was, it was a place called Bailey's or in Belfast. I was working for Coffee Angel at the time. And I'd been working in coffee for about a year and a half. I, I was actually the Irish barista champion at the time, and I was going to Belfast to learn the cupping. So I was going to go and learn the cupping. That's what I was going to do. And I went up, and I was incredibly nervous. I was meeting a roaster, and he uh, had the, 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 the cups out laid out on the table. And he was doing the thing where you kind of smell it, and then you bring your nose away, and then you smell it, and you bring your nose away like this. But when I turned around, he was doing this. And I was like, what the fuck's he listening to? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> which is my intro introduction to coffee. Uh, but it, it is, it's a very valuable tool for, for barista. The first thing, uh, and I think I had this conversation with you and Gwilym, is that it opens up the potential of the coffee. So when you get a coffee and you cup it, you can say, well, uh, okay, this is these are the flavors that are in the coffee, and how do we achieve that in our brewing? How do we make those things come true? And then there's the aspirational side. Now, I think at this stage, everybody can admit that everything that you cup in coffee... Uh, is not going to show up in the cup. Coffees don't brew like they cup. And this is an unfortunate truth. At the moment, I'm involved in a project that is hoping to bridge that gap somewhat. But I think we can all accept that when you cup coffees, it doesn't brew like that. And this is kind of the crux of, of my problem, is because I see people getting too involved in cupping, obsessed with cupping, and then ignoring the brewing bit. I don't really have an answer for this question. Um, but what about this? So what if you detect, what if you find a defect in, when cupping that isn't apparent in a brewed coffee? All right, so we've, I, I, I presume we've, well, I've said it, so we've established it, that you don't taste all of the things in brewed coffee that you do when you cup them, okay? So you're, you're kind of augmenting all of those flavors in that process, okay? So what if, in theory, okay, right, just in theory, you cup coffee and you, you taste something, all right? You go, oh, that's not good. Then you brew it, and it's not there. All right, so show of hands, who's serving that coffee? I'm not gonna put my hand up for either, so who's serving that coffee? Three, four, five, six, anyone else? So you're not gonna brew the coffee because you tasted something when you cupped it that nobody else is gonna taste. Now, I'm not saying you're right or wrong, I'm just saying that's really interesting. Like, I think about this all the time. Like, what is the goal here? 
if I had a cupping shop, I wouldn't serve it. But if I, if I have a coffee shop that serves cups of coffees, I'm thinking, well, okay, what is the goal here? I'm not sure I have an answer to that. This is a remarkable gentleman. His name is Luca. And Luca runs uh, the Fumbly in Dublin. Now, if you haven't been to the Fumbly, I'm sure if you come to Dublin next year for WBC, you'll end up there. They do incredible food. They're wonderful people. They're a busy coffee shop. They buy coffee from us, from the barn, from uh, Roasted Brown, I think, as well. A few different places around. And Luca is a tour de force in gastronomy. He's created this wonderful environment for, for wine and food and beer and coffee. Like it's, he's, Him and Ashling, his business partner, have created this wonderful place. Like It's, it's all about taste and, and meeting people. It's, it's incredible. And Luca had this problem with the coffee, and well, they picked the coffee, they bought it, then they sent it back, and he called me, and he was like, I'm really sorry. I'm like, dude, you have to be sorry. You know, we can replace it, we'll find something else. So I was like, it's just that we took the coffee, we served it in the shop, and we like it, and that's interesting. I'm not going to blame you. So what's the problem? He goes, look, Colin, I feel really stupid about this, but like, like we cupped the coffee, we like it, and then we made espresso with it, and it wasn't... I don't know, it wasn't what we were looking for. And I was like, all right. He goes, so, it, I know, this is a stupid question, but why did we cup it? And I was like, I didn't tell you to cup it. And he went, well, I f is that not what we're supposed to do? I'm like, I don't know, it's your shop. You do. He goes, what would you do? I'd say, I'd pull shots. And this happens a lot to us because like, we get people that we'd send coffee to or for wholesale or they buy a bag of coffee and they say, yeah, we did this, we cupped it, it was shit. I'm like, all right, that's fair enough. Okay, so uh, did you brew it? No. Okay, right, that's interesting. Uh, could you brew it? And they're like, oh, we cupped it, we didn't like it. I'm like, all right. And I've had coffees that I've cupped, and but they're amazing. And you brew them, and they're not so good. And vice versa. And you have coffees that cup really well, brew really well, cup badly, brew badly. So again, you're, you're standing back and going, all right, well, you know, what is the goal here? What are we trying to achieve? And at the very least, I would like you to brew the coffee because that's what it was intended to be done with it. It's intended to be brewed. Because to my mind, a cof coffee shop is an excellent QC procedure. This in itself is a controversial thing to say because I've been to lots of places where you have to work for two years, get your 17 badges, do the 14 training courses, and then you get the gift of espresso. Then you're allowed to make espresso. And that's great, there is a, there's a place that I, if you do that, I'm not telling you it's the wrong thing to do, but I've been to places like that and you get the espresso and it's kind of shitty. And you're like, well, what's the goal here? I know you have all the badges uh, and you have the toggle and everything, but like the coffee doesn't taste very good. Now, there's other places you go to where they have no QC procedure in a strict sense and then the coffee's awful. All right, that does happen. We're kind of somewhere in the middle, like, to me, culture trumps any training program. Culture is incredibly important. So when you're holding a cup of coffee, and you know that there's something wrong with it, that it's just not right, you know something's happened, and there's a queue out the door, and you're under pressure, and you have that split-second decision to make, am I walking this to a table, or am I doing it again? Now, you can have all the rules you want, but if you don't have strong culture to back up those rules, it's useless. So you need to have the rules in place. So we do have the rules in place, but it's the culture which is the most important thing. And it's a harder thing to write a tweet about. It's a harder thing to tell people at a trade show. Oh, we got this really strong culture. Do you know? That's great. 
Uh, and we've done lots of different things. This is like statistical analysis of espresso. This is interesting because the tolerance was 18 to 22. Uh, below the line of 18, there's a few there, and I'd say, well, why are they brewed like that? And the guys would always say, well, we wouldn't have served those if the guy testing the espresso hadn't have taken them away for sampling, because it was random sampling. And I'm like, well, how can I trust you on that? They're like, I don't know. So to me, that, that indicates exactly what it is. And we kind of go in and out of this. So we do lots and lots of analysis of the espresso, lots and lots of um, QC, very, very strict QC procedures. And then we employed David Walsh from Marco, who I'm sure most of you know, to come by. And I said, he did all this and helped us do this as a third party uh, kind of an analyst. Got incredibly, we were looking for 19.5% mean extraction. We got 19.455 over a three month period. It's incredibly good. So I was like, what's the next step? And Dave said, well, you got a few. You could try to get tighter. Like, yeah, he goes, you could do more testing. Yeah, he goes, or you could do nothing. I was like, what? He goes, you just do nothing. I was like, what do you mean? He said, well, just stop. Just keep making coffee and stop testing. I was like, okay, so we did that. Um, I think mostly we're, this annoys me because we are an omni roaster, for want of a better phrase. Um, and an omni roaster, uh, and I say we in the, in the company sense, since I've already explained I'm not a roaster, we don't have an espresso roast, we don't have a filter roast. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that that's the right or wrong thing to do. Steve will. Uh, but what I will say is that that's our choice. So we choose to do it this way, and we like doing it this way. But one of the byproducts of being an omni roaster is that your coffee isn't sometimes as, um, how am I going to say? Uh, it doesn't always stand out as much on a cupping table. I encounter a lot of coffees, and we, we, we have what we call the coffee wormhole, where coffee just randomly turns up in the shop. So we put them on the tables on the Friday, and we have a cupping session every Friday. To me, it's actually just a, uh, a get-together for everybody to talk about different things. The true worth of the coffee is found out Monday to Friday in the shop. Like, when you make 600 espressos a day, then you know how good or bad that coffee is. Or if you're brewing X amount of uh, filter coffee, then you know how good. That's the real test of it. It's not... That's part of the process, but not the entire process. And that's why I always believe that that's a worthy process. The QC procedure is the existence of a strong culture in a shop. But with our coffees, we put them on the table, and sometimes we're like, oh, this, oh, that's annoying. This coffee here is so much better than ours. And it's, it's amazing. It cups incredibly well, and it's such a floral notes and nuance and all these things. And you go, oh. And I take it home for the weekend, and I'm like, maybe it's my water or something. I don't know. Bring it back in on Monday, brew it in the shop. It's not good. Well. It's not what we would consider good, okay? So it's different to what we were trying to achieve. Uh, and this happens quite a lot. And what I find is that maybe we don't have coffees roasted in a way that are spectacular on a cupping table, but our goal focus is the cups. And when I talked, I called Steve one day, and I'm sure he'll remember this conversation. I said, could you make the coffees taste better on the cupping table? He said, I could do that tomorrow. It's no problem. So would they brew better? Nope. And that's our opinion, but I think that's, that's something that happens. And I think, it kind of leads me on to mismeasurement, which is a very similar thing to what Matt was talking about earlier. Is that the strange metrics that we use to measure in our industry, the strange methods we use to, to grade what we're doing, to, to tell progress on what we're doing, is a very difficult thing for, uh, for this industry. And I think it's something that we really need to talk about. Because sometimes people are measuring quality on the cupping table and forgetting about the shops. They're monitoring quality in training programs and in 12-part badge systems and forgetting about, good morning, how are you? 
And there's very, very strange ways that we, we measure our success. There's a lot of subjectivity in what we do. And this is something that I think causes an awful lot of uh, grief for me because I always talk about the subjectivity of the coping process. And in, there's a lot of education and sensory programs. And what I would say is that they make them less objective, or sorry, more objective, less subjective as they go along. And excellent training can make that happen. But it will always be a subjective process. Quality is a subjective thing. People get very angry when you talk about that, but I'm saying, well, what if it's a really awful coffee that tastes like, you know, absolutely fermented stuff? Like, there's a guy that likes that somewhere. We pay a lot of money for cheese that smells like feet and ass. You know, we, ha we, we pull, like, rotten fungus out of the ground and scrape it, little shavings of it, because it's so expensive. Like, I wouldn't really be surprised about any of this sort of things. It is a subjective process. There are very objective things about coffee. If you want to weigh coffee, that is an objective process. Take coffee, put it on a scale, it's 323 grams, that is objective, okay? There's no arguing with that. You can, s you can measure the size of coffee. You can take out a little ruler and say, this is 0.623 of a centimeter. That is an objective process. Most of you have witnessed the wonders of seeing how far you can throw coffee. <laughs> Uh, we proved that last night, not very far. Um, you, can, you can throw, that is an objective process. Saying how good coffee is, is a completely subjective process. Now you can narrow those barriers and say, well, we do lots of collaborations so that we're all on the same sheet and uh, it's, it's graded in the same way. When I, I understand the, uh, the, the idea behind having a 90-point coffee or a 92-point coffee or an 87-point coffee, but when people talk about it in, a very, in very definitive terms, that this is a 92-point coffee. That annoys me because I'm like, well, it's a very subjective thing. No, it's not. We did the grading system. I'm like, okay, so how many judges were there? Eight. Why? If there was a code in the coffee and all you had to be is do is to be trained to unlock that code to give you that coffee's distinct objective magic number, then we just need one person on every jury. It is a very subjective term, and people forget this. It leads me on to other subjective ways or other kind of strange measures of methods or methods of measurements that we use. So this is a strange degree of success to kind of herald. And someone texted me, a good friend of me, texted me, said, cure at the door, three of fee, amazing. And I was sitting at home going, that actually sounds kind of shit. I can imagine how the, the, the staff are right now, if it's queue at the door, they're stressed, they want... They've got a long list of drinks in front of them. They want the customers to have a good time. That doesn't sound very nice. For the customers, they're, they're standing in a queue. It's Dublin. It's probably raining. <laughs> okay, that doesn't sound very nice. The customers that are sitting down are sitting there surrounded in crowds of people. That doesn't sound very good either. It's actually quite, I don't know, it sounds kind of bad to me. So I texted my friend back and said, well, how was your experience? He said, well, actually, it was too busy, so we just kept walking. <laughs> So I was like, well, that doesn't sound amazing at all. But this is seen as a degree of success. We were told for a long time that like 600 cups a day was where we wanted to get. That was like, it's probably the same over here, but in Ireland, like a 600 cup a day cafe is, is like the holy grail of coffee shops. And we're chasing that. We get 450 up to 5, up to 525, hit 560 one day. We're like, oh, we're nearly there. And I'm going to stop and think, like, this is a really weird goal to be chasing. Why are we doing this? Do I want to serve 600 cups of coffee a day? What does that do to the staff? 
Does that mean we need more machines? Does it mean we, don't we need more grinders? What does it do to the customer experience? How does that affect quality? Is this actually a, a, a goal that we want to chase? You say, well, we'll make more money. Will we? So I did some numbers in UK VAT. So 600 cups a day. So if we put 50% or 50 pence on a cup of coffee and lost like the guts of 20% of our customers overnight because of it, you'd end up making 30 pence more in a day. Okay, so that's not really the issue here. You'd also make seven, 17% less coffee, 17% less milk, less cups. But what would really happen is that you would end up having less coffees to serve, have a better experience for the customers because it's less rushed, and in theory, as long as you use that time appropriately, the quality would improve. This seems like a good goal. So we, I, I never want to make 600 cups a day. If I make 600 cups a day, they're going up again. It's a, it's a strange measurement to want. And the, I think it's happened an awful lot lately because of things like uh, Cropster and things like uh, refractometers, which are excellent tools to use, okay? So the very first refractometers that were sent out by Vince Fidele, I was lucky enough to get one. I was very heavily involved in, do you remember the days when you'd go, you're looking for 1.3 and you'd be like 1.2, 1.45, 1.39, 1.27, 1.22, Yes, we're there. Great extraction. And that's how you did it. You just pressed it until you saw the number you wanted. And they've become a lot more reliable these days. But it's not the be-all and end-all. They're not accurate. Now, when I say accurate, I mean accurate in its true form. You end up with a kind of a, a range where it probably is. And even then, if you've got three refractometers, put them side by side, take the same sample, put them in three, you're probably going to get three different readings. Take the same sample on the same refractometer three times, you'll probably get different readings. But it definitely gives you a ballpark, and that's a very, very worthy thing. But it frustrates me that people don't understand the difference between maximum extraction and optimum extraction. Maximum extraction is the most you can extract from that coffee. Off you go. If you want to do that, off you go. Optimum extraction is the point of extraction where the coffee tastes best. If you serve me, there's a weird thing like Kenyan coffee at 14% tastes kind of nice sometimes. Like if it's 20%, if it's 24%, I don't care. You find the place where you want to extract and where it tastes best. That is optimum extraction. It's a very, very different thing to maximum extraction. And I think there's huge pressure, especially like me and you, we're getting old, you know? But like there's, there's a lot of young people coming into this industry who are going to drive us for the next 10 years and they feel incredible pressure to extract 26% instead of 25%. And we need to enable them to say, listen guys, you don't have to do it. You know, you can pull this back a little bit. And it's a huge problem. It's a massive problem. And my belief with refractometers is that every coffee shop should have one, and you should use it to tell people how you brew your coffee. Don't ever use it to tell you how to brew your coffee. There's a very, very big difference. If you divide a 20 gram dose into four gram particles, I don't know how you're going to do that, but anyway, if you did, you might get 16%, 28%, 21%, 19%, 11%. The average extraction is 19%. Now, different parts of coffee extract in different ways. We don't know how and why. We've got some very good theories. It's not abundantly clear, but it's incredibly important to understand that what you're talking about is an average across the board of all the particles that you have there. 
that your 19% extraction, you can achieve 19% extraction in many different ways with many different taste profiles. And that's the message that's lost sometimes. So with cupping and the actual goal behind it, with coffee shops and the goal behind it, and refractometers and all of these things that we use to empower ourselves and to say wonderful things about what we do, my, my real message here today is actually to be goal-focused in what you do. To not forget about the real reason why you're, why you're doing all this. And if you are to take one thing away from today, it is that. To actually take a step back all of the time and reconsider your goals. What am I trying to achieve? Completely stripped of all the pressures and the obligations that you feel about being part of this industry, like our industry, what we do. What do you want to do? It could be completely different. The natural progression from that is a drill, of course. Yeah, I should probably explain this. So, this is a, an example that I, somebody told me not so while ago, and it's been banging around my head ever since. So, with drills, imagine you own a drill company, okay? So, in the drill market, it's very competitive. You have Makita, you have Black & Decker, you have... There must be another one. I can't think of another one. Very, very competitive. They all vaguely look like this guy. Very hard to tell the difference between them. So I say, okay, what are we going to do? How are we going to improve our drills? How are we going to get better at what we do? How are we going to do more sales? You know, how are we going to beat the bad guys? So you start doing things like maybe you'll get like a, a bigger battery or maybe a smaller battery that holds more power. And then you get a, a handle and you get like a waterproof handle so that if the people use it in the rain, that it doesn't slip out of their hand. And one that not only has a longer battery life, but takes less time to charge. Or maybe you get like a diamond tip thing on the top, whatever that's called, <laughs> and you uh, a drill bit, and that'll like, you know, you know, last longer and drill harder. And they're, they're all the things that'll improve, okay? But if you take a step back and say, listen, what's the goal here, okay? What are we trying to do? All right, and instead of trying to sell quarter-inch drills, if you actually sit back and think about it, what do people want? People don't want drills, people want holes. What the market wants is a quarter-inch hole. So if I come up with like a little pen that's a quarter-inch that excretes a serum that would sear a quarter-inch hole in any wall very easily, with no noise and no waste, I would kill the drill market. Overnight. And what I feel we're doing in the industry at the moment is we're, we're making drills, boys <laughs> and girls. But that's what we're doing. We're making drills. We're just navel-gazing. We're looking at how to improve what we're doing and forgetting about what our goals are, forgetting about why we're doing this in the first place, and forgetting about all the things that made us get into the industry in the first place. So I do love cupping in a very uh, <laughs> real sense. Uh, but thank you very much for listening to me today. It's, um, it's good to finally have you back on, Colin. Thanks for using that photo. <laughs> Blame Jen. <laughs> um, glad to see the beard's gone as well. We should definitely, uh, the elephant in the room, what, what happened? Round of applause for the beard. Yeah, what happened? Um, I don't know. I just, yeah. Did you miss your chin? <laughs> um, great presentation. Um, I kind of we've talked about this a lot um, about the whole company coffee shops and I mean QC is obviously important. 
Um, and uh, the guys at the roastery are cupping all of the time. Um, what's your QC goal? I know you're saying that the customer experience is a QC goal, but there must be other things that you are, like, are you randomly going there and say, right, shot, let me taste it with some milk, or have you got somebody that does that? Okay, so I think there's a misperception of what QC is, because somebody, okay, it stands for quality control. Okay, so if somebody says, do you have a QC procedure? It makes you think of like a folder with a binder or with a very structured system or like a, I, all these sort of things that have to be done bang, 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 bang. It, what I talk to people about is like, like what is, like you can tell by, if you go to a coffee farm, you can step out of the, out of the, you know, the truck or whatever and you can see instantly, I remember you telling me this about, you can almost sense whether the coffee's gonna be good or, or bad, you know? And shops can do an awful lot in just like, in just existing, the, the culture of the place, how they, how, how they go about things, how much they're cleaning their machines, how much they care about things. And it's a very, it's a very human-centered approach to controlling quality, and that's completely valid. Uh, to, it can be a list of instructions and rules. That is a quality control procedure, but so is running a really tasty coffee shop. Like, that is also a QC procedure. I think in itself, that is what it is. Like, there's many different restaurants around the world that have, like, almost laboratories in the back of what they, uh, of the kitchens, you know, when they're doing that. And then there's other great restaurants where everything is just taste, taste, taste. And both of those things are valid. I think Matt p pointed out very, very well earlier on as well. So there's lots of things that the guys do in their daily work. But if at some point a coffee comes from the roastery, gets into a machine, lands in a cup, we will find out about it if it's not good. Like, it happens. We go, well, this isn't good. Everybody takes responsibility, gets pulled. It happens. Uh, but I don't, I think it's unnecessary sometimes that people put huge emphasis into the, that binder and forget about actually what they're trying to achieve, which is tasty cups of coffee. Uh, we're joined by Dale Harris because I didn't want to come and talk to him on my own because yeah, <laughs> we, we, we don't like to. He's intimidating. Uh, but yeah, Dale, um, do you want to ask Colin a question? Hello, Colin. Hi, Dale. I'm, I'm, I'm your guest questioner. Um, I like lots of your presentation, and I think there were two, two stages. So there's talking about the cuffing and what it does and why you wouldn't do it, and then there was lots of interesting stuff about setting goals and, and gaming systems as well. So how do you measure the success of a cafe? Uh, in lots of different ways. So like we had... Um, I'm sure it's a, it's like a trick of accounting because there was, I think probably one pur purchases were stuck into the next month because of invoicing dates and we probably had f one less payday for the staff because of the way the payday fell. But for some reason we hit uh, like a net profit of 30% that month, which for a coffee shop is just like, what? It was crazy. Um, and it was like, uh, the account was like, this is awesome. And I was like, it was probably the worst point in the cafe's history. We just we just gone from the point of being this like not so busy cafe into this like like this unstoppable juggernaut that is just going and going and you've got no control over it. Um and it was weird because it's like that's supposed to be the goal of a cafe is to make money. And I'm just like, well that's not right. And then other times you feel this amazing buzz in the cafe and what the guys call vibes if you follow us on Twitter. Um and that's amazing and the profits are down, you're like, okay. And it's it, it fluctuates all the time, but it's about to me it's about uh, the happiness of the staff, the happiness of the customers, the quality of the coffee, the profitability of the shop, and and how those things mix together, you know. And then there's also things that all of those things could be happening, but if we're not innovating within that, then it's not really worth it. 
And also, pe people need to be challenged in that kind of environment. So it's a mesh of different things, you know. And at different times, you have to let things drop so that something else can rise, you know. So I think you have to balance all those factors. But where is the is there convergence between them? So the consistency or the quality of your extractions, the happiness of the customers, and the profitability of a shop. Do those three things go together? Do you have to choose one? Do you have to because chains and being very simplistic about it, but chains do lots of research and they choose a, a quality standard and they stick to it and they mass produce it and then they focus on making that profitable or scaling it to a point and how, how do you choose which one is most important at any one time? Is there a right answer or is there uh, a balance of them, a priority? I think in a very long-term sense there is because what you do is if, if, if your margins are good, your staff are well paid, they're happy, the customers are having a good time, the shop is clean, the extractions are good, it sets a culture in, in the business, in the building itself of we do things properly. And any business that has that feeling, it's like, to me, it's, it's like a football team. You know, it's like, it's any sort of team that you put together. If, if everybody believes you're doing things the right way for the right reasons, then everything just follows after that. Like th uh, so I do think it, it has a massive impact. It's not as simple as saying, oh, if we hit 23% extraction, we're going to make 100 euro more next month or something. Like it's, it's not that simple, but I think it's the same in any business that if, 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 if there's a collective feeling that you're achieving something, then that's going to be, that's going to show, it, show itself up everywhere. This is your chance to ask Colin a question as the audience. Has anybody got uh, something they'd like to ask? I don't think Jeremy's talking yeah, to me. Didn't oh, expect is. that one. <laughs> I've got a few questions. I'll, I'll just choose one. Um, as, a, as an omni roaster, have you found or have you selected that way of roasting because it widens your margin of error on the espresso machine? Because what we'd like, what we'd like is, you know, get shots within twenty or forty seconds, and they'll all taste good. But it, what's your goal with omni roasting in your shop? Does it make life easier? Uh, well, I suppose I wish I, I could give you like an, an very well articulated answer in this sense. But like, I believe hugely in parameters, like so that people like you have certain parameters for a business. My friend Jessica runs one of the best restaurants in the country in a kitchen about the size of that table. And she's always giving out about it, but I'm convinced that that's what makes her great. And when we started using coffee, Steve roasted all of our coffee. And I liked Steve's coffee. Uh, I don't even think I, I... I think it took me like a year before I understood that different people did different things. I'm, I used to think it was a labelling thing. I was like, why don't you put espresso on the label? He's like, well, we don't do an espresso roast profile. I'm like, What's an espresso roast profile? Um, so that's kind of how we set things up and like to all intents and purposes we brew coffee in the way that we've always had the roast coffee delivered to us so that's always been the context to which we've been delivered we've used other people's coffees in the past and, and enjoyed them but always come back to this way uh, and that's I d it's not anything to do with espresso extraction to my mind uh, like I say this with all respect because I know that like there are people here that roast coffee different ways and they're like, I think my coffee's better than yours. And I'm like, yeah, I respect that. And I think mine is better than yours. You know, I love my wife, more, you know, and you love yours and that's fine, you know? And I think that we should be a lot more respectful of that because just because you don't like someone's coffee doesn't mean it's bad because it's very subjective. 
the motivator is not extraction. The motivator to me, and the way myself and Steve would always talk about this, is that we see at a certain coffee, at a certain point, the coffee is at its tastiest, and that's where we brew it. Now, uh, that uh, you can, it's open for shooting at completely, uh, but that's what we believe, and it's served us well, and we we found people that like drinking that belief. That's a really cheesy way to sum it up. <laughs> I, n I know it's not my Q&A session, but can I add a little bit to it as well? Because I, I think it's a really interesting question. I think it's harder for the barista to work with a coffee that isn't roasted for espresso. I think it's infinitely harder. Um, when you buy a TV and you get it out of the box and you set it up, you set up the colour and contrast to be perfect for your eyes, exactly how you want it. And from what I understand, talking to people who roast for espresso, they tend to say they take it a bit darker. So if you set up that TV perfect for your eyes, you have this beautiful picture in front of you, and then for a different program you make it a bit darker, it's not the perfect picture anymore. Yeah, it's probably easier to watch or for whatever reason you've done it, but I think that it's, it's very much about finding the perfect point for a coffee and then living with that, and then the barista has to work really hard. It's to make that coffee work better in the machine. But it's possible. Um, it's just, yeah. I've also heard it's because we don't, we can roast, do less roasts because we can just say, oh, it's for filter and espresso. And that that's the motivator. I'm like, that's not the motivator either. We throw out a lot of coffee, unfortunately. Uh, but it's, uh, it's, I don't know. I think it's, uh, for a long time, I'm probably like, Steve saw that T-shirt that I put up there. I haven't actually managed to print it. And he was like, don't do that. And he says, I'm probably a bit more uh, brash about it, but it's something we're very proud of. So I like to call it roasting properly, more than omni-roast. Um, uh, a really interesting talk, Colin. Thank you very much. Uh, please, big round of applause for Colin Harmon.